because I still think that if someone is out there with the snowblower or the shovel and uh, doing their best um, to make the property safe, to remove as much accumulation as possible, I still think that that is a, a good case for reasonable care. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is in court today, so uh, I'll be flying solo. I'd uh, like, uh, of course, to thank our program sponsors, SunTrust, which offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. Clio, the web-based practice management uh, solution available at goclio.com, and LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions to professionals in a variety of industries. And you can find them, of course, at LexisNexis.com. Well, I can tell you firsthand that this winter has been especially brutal for us here in the Northeast, and it hasn't been much better for the rest of the country. Last week's superstorm covered much of the country with one to two feet of snow and ice and even threatened uh, some people attending the Super Bowl in, in Dallas. Some estimates say 100 million Americans had to dig out of that destructive weather system. Uh, one thing uh, we haven't, we don't think about uh, too much uh, amidst all this snow and ice is uh, the issue of legal liability. At least those of us who aren't lawyers don't think about it, but uh, of course lawyers do think about that. Uh, and, and up here in Massachusetts in particular, uh, the Supreme Judicial Court uh, this year decided a case uh, in which uh, it reversed what had come to be known as the Massachusetts rule regarding liability for uh, for uh, natural accumulations such as snow and ice. Um, so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the legal issues raised by winter weather and, uh, and about this case in particular. And uh, to help us do that, we have two guests today who are going to uh, provide some insight on this. First of all, joining us is David White. David is a founding member of uh, the Boston law firm Breakstone White & Gluck PC. David concentrates in personal injury and professional liability claims, primarily for plaintiffs, business litigation, and claims against insurance companies for bad faith insurance practices. David is a past president of the Massachusetts Bar Association, where he led efforts on sentencing reform and on environmental awareness for Lawyers. Uh, he helps his firm put out the Massachusetts Injury Lawyer blog. And he's also an old friend of mine uh, as well. So, welcome to the program, David. Bob, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And joining us next today is uh, another Massachusetts lawyer, James Scamby. Jim is a partner at the Boston law firm Tucker, Heifetz, and Saltzman LLP. He's been practicing law for more than 15 years and concentrates in general liability, insurance coverage professional liability, 
insurance agents and brokers, errors and omissions, products liability, employment law, and commercial transactions. Jim has tried numerous cases to verdict in both state and federal courts. He's also briefed and argued a number of appeals before the Massachusetts Appeals Court and SJC, including the 2010 case uh, I was referring to uh, in my introduction, Papadopoulos versus Target Corporation, uh, and another 2010 case, Soderberg versus Concord Green. So uh, welcome to the program, uh, Jim Scamby. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, well, uh, there are a lot of, lot of issues I'd like to talk about today, but uh, I'd like to start by, by talking about the Papadopoulos case. Uh, 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 for uh, uh, reading, reading through this case, uh, one might uh, think they were back in uh, first year of law school with all its talk of uh, invitees and trespassers and, and property law and, and, and tort law. But Jim, since, since you're involved in this case, maybe you could just give us the, the background of, of what happened here. Well, the background of the case was really quite simple, and it was, it was not unique uh, as far as these cases go. It was a, a gentleman went to Target, um, just like many of us do. Uh, routine trip to Target. Uh, there had been uh, some accumulation prior to that. He parked in a uh, handicapped space, one of the designated spaces near the front. He got out. He did notice some, uh, he, he described as some uh, small chunks of ice on the parking lot surface, but uh, was able to successfully go into the Target and make his purchases. And when he returned to go to his car, he he tripped over one of these frozen pieces of ice and uh, suffered a, a fairly uh, significant injury, and he was able to describe it as a, uh, a a chunk of ice that was maybe about the size of a, a half of a baseball. He referred to it as a globber of, of ice, and so he brought suit in the superior court uh, to recover for the injuries. And the facts don't really get any more complicated than that. Right, and and I should say, if I didn't make this clear, that that you were represented uh, target in this case. We actually represented both. My, my firm represented both of the defendants. Uh, the, the landscaping company that was hired by Target to do the uh, snow removal, and then Target itself. Uh, we represented both parties in as defendants in the lawsuit. Well, why don't you why don't you tell us what happened after the lawsuit was filed? Yeah. Uh, well, again, it, it sized up like just about every other ice and snow case, and it, and I, whenever I talk about this case, I, I I don't mean to sound disrespectful to the plaintiff. One thing that's um, that separates uh, ice and snow cases from some of the other more routine cases that we see, like um, you know s- uh, low impact auto accidents and stuff. Is uh, these cases often have real injuries uh, because let's face it, you know when you when you slip on ice and you go down, uh, it's usually not a good result. And and these cases often involve fractures, surgeries, and things of that nature. So um, this gentleman was clearly injured. There's no question about it. Uh, but as far as the facts are concerned, we're operating under uh, 130 years of, of established case law, um, at you, as you called it, the Massachusetts rule. And so we did like we usually do, uh, or usually did on, on these kinds of cases, and uh, worked up discovery, took depositions. And when we had a record in place uh, that we felt was sufficient, we filed a motion for summary judgment on behalf of uh, Target and uh, the landscaper. And at the trial court level, we prevailed, primarily based on the natural accumulation rule. Um, the chunk of ice that caused Mr. Papadopoulos to trip and fall uh, 
was not really described well. There was no evidence as to how long it had been there, where it had come from, etc. And so the trial judge, I believe, was was constrained by the law and ruled accordingly, and, and a result that we frankly expected. Uh, they filed a notice of appeal to the appeals court, which affirmed the decision in a uh, summary disposition. And it was not until the plaintiff sought further appellate review with the SJC that, um, well, not even then. It, will, it was when the SJC indicated that uh, the court was taking the case is that when we realized something was, was going on. But up until that yeah. point, we'd prevailed. Yeah, and, and I know that uh, both the Defense Lawyers Association and, and the uh, the Plaintiffs Lawyers Association in the state filed uh, filed amicus briefs. Uh, David, I want to bring you into the conversation. You want to help us understand what happened at the SJC here? Well, first of all, I know that sinking feeling that Jim must have had when the court solicited uh, an input from a variety of sources to assist it in its decision on this case. Uh, and as Jim has said, this was a long-standing rule. The plaintiff's struggle for years before this case was to try to find some way to suggest that the accumulation was unnatural. And you, you say, well, were there footprints frozen in it? Did somebody do something to alter it? But freezing and thawing with ice resulting would be not a case. Uh, small bounds of snow would be not a case if it reflected someone's effort to get snow out of the way. So it was a it was a an impediment, and the law was sort of murky. Depending on how we looked at it, uh, you might see a different result. So now the case is at the SJC, uh, and the SJC, as it has been in the last couple of years in, in some of these personal injury cases, uh, took a look at a very old standard. Uh, it looked back and said, well, we don't have to uh, be as we were in the 1880s because we now have salt and sand and trucks and machines to remove all of these snow and ice. Uh, and quoting from the Rhode Island Supreme Court case, they said, you know, a, a landlord well armed with any of these tools can handle most of these situations. Uh, and the SJC did something uh, remarkable, but at the same time unremarkable and said the standard of care here from now on is going to be one of reasonable care, which is the same standard that applies in basically any other premises liability case. And so ex- explain this to me, Jim, this, this this sort of distinction between natural and artificial hazards. Uh, how How is snow uh, and ice ever anything but a natural hazard? Well, we always like to say that it was, and that that carried that carried us for a long time uh, because of the very nature. If you go back and look at the, if you look at the development of the case law over the years, um, there was sort of a, a reinforcing of the notion that in New England and in Massachusetts, we have a climate that is the fault of no one, um, and that ice and snow uh, form naturally. And so we always operated from the defense point of view, uh, from the perspective that um, we're going into this with the opinion that it is a natural accumulation of snow and ice because snow and ice accumulate naturally. And from there, we will try to work the case towards summary judgment um, based on that principle. Now, what happened, as as David mentioned, is um, you had uh, a number of cases that were starting to create exceptions or or at least to recognize exceptions. And some of the more notable ones that would come up frequently in opposition papers at summary judgment would be, just for example, if a parking lot was not treated 
in any way following an, uh, an event, a snowfall event, and then open to the public, the vehicle traffic coming and going and the pedestrian traffic coming and going would create footprints and it would leave gouges or tire tracks. And then, because we all can relate to this living here, uh, temperatures rise and fall, um, sometimes abruptly. And when the temperature would rise, um, obviously some of that uh, form, some of the ice that had formed would melt. Uh, the snow would get a little softer. And then when the temperature would drop again, it would freeze. And one of the courts said, well, if you have frozen footprints and frozen tire tracks, that's not natural. It was natural when it fell. Now it's unnatural because it's been touched and it's been allowed to transform into, instead of being a sheet of fallen snow, it's now rutted and pitted and it has footprints in it and those are hazardous. Other cases talked about defects on the property itself, like a pothole, a depression, uh, runoff from a downspout that may have been placed in an uh, ill-advised location. Uh, you know, we had cases talking about the, the significance of uh, the passage of time, especially, again, in a commercial setting where it's expected that uh, patrons are going to be coming and going. Again, you have that foot traffic. You have that vehicle traffic. Um, so what we started to see was a, uh, a little bit of pushback against the natural accumulation rule when uh, – Plaintiff's attorneys were able to make successfully make the argument that look something has happened, and that's really where th th that magic language comes from the Muncie case. And what it what it says is something, some act or failure to act by the property owner has transformed this into an unnatural condition. I think the point was we were never able to just look at a photograph and say that's natural or that's unnatural. It, it, it was always a case by case determination, but there were cases popping up over the years that we're finding exceptions to the general rule. And I think that compilation of cases is, uh, together with uh, even a, a case that had nothing to do with ice and snow, which was the Sheehan case, I think that is a, was, th those were the building blocks to uh, the SJC ruling in Papadopoulos. Another one of the building blocks was with the, when the court looked at some of the injustices uh, that were rendered by the old rule. And this is a, the main case that comes to mind for me anyway is the case of Sullivan versus the town of Brookline, where someone had shoveled a walkway up to, a, I think it was a medical clinic, and by removing the latest layer of snow, they exposed the ice, which had been below that. And the court said, well, maybe there, there was ice exposed, but that ice itself was a natural accumulation. And even by removing the snow, and making it even more hazardous, uh, there was still no liability against the town for exposing the greater danger of the ice that was underneath the, the layer of snow. Uh, so the, the, the court recognized the unevenness of approach to different cases and, and the unfairness for people who were seriously hurt just because of a, a, a little bit of a quirk. Uh, and as a plaintiff's lawyer, when we were evaluating cases as they came in the door, you know, we knew what, what how hard these cases were with this very high standard out there. And it was basically, if you don't have a picture of you lying next to the downspout that's spewing ice all over the public parking lot or the uh, sidewalk there, you, you've got a pretty tough case, and it's probably not going to be a successful case in the long run. Well, and again, we're, we're talking here about a, a, 
a precedent, I guess, that goes back uh, well over 100 years in, in Massachusetts. I understand it. It had been uh, the court had been kind of chipping away at it uh, in recent years. Uh, it kind of uh, walked away from from some of the common law notions here of premises liability. But what what I mean, what's the bottom line here for for property owners? What is the responsibility uh, of a property owner uh, in in bad weather, such as a uh, such has been all too common this winter here in Massachusetts? David, let well, me just I, ask you that. Yeah, I, I had a chance to talk about this uh, with some of the media in Massachusetts, and of course they're very excited, thinking it's a new law, and you're you're going to get arrested if you don't shovel your walk as the flakes are coming down. Uh, but just as with any other premises liability case, we get back to the question of did the owner or the person in control of the premises, use reasonable care. And whether they did or did not is going to be a question for the fact finder at the end of the day, whether it's the judge or the jury. And you can just see what factors are going to go into that, and the court uh, scripted some of them. You know, how quickly did the did the uh, landlord act after the snow had fallen at the apartment house? Uh, how much would it cost to have made it better or as good as it was? How reasonable is the effort? Uh, and if it's a big snowstorm, you can expect people are going to have to attend to it during the storm. If it's a small storm and doesn't leave a, a large amount of snow or ice behind, uh, there may be some gap in time that would be considered reasonable. But if there's snow on the ground, at some point, the landowner or the person in control is going to have to make some effort to make it clear or make it reasonably safe for people to get on and off the property. And that goes for people that you've invited, the old invitee rule, and anybody else lawfully on the premises. So that could be a mail carrier or, or someone making a delivery to your, your premises. Hey, Jim, Jim, is that how you see it? Do you have anything to add to that in terms of uh, a property owner's uh, responsibility here? Well, we're, we're still trying to figure, what it, figure out what it means because, you know, if you look at the, the discussion in the decision, there's reference in there to the fact that what is reasonable for one might not be reasonable for another. And trying to get your arms around this from a defense perspective is not an easy thing. Uh, we know that the standard is, it, it, again, it's, it's now a reasonable care standard. So what is reasonable? You know, what is reasonable historically is, is something that's uh, a matter for the jury to decide. And we now have to look very carefully at the facts of all of these cases. Um, I know I can look out the window right now and, and see the evidence of what has happened for the past few weeks here. Um, last week's, uh, you know, back-to-back -back storms and seeing folks out there with snowblowers and shovels and everything else. Um, but I think our, our, our approach to these cases now has to focus on what the client did and can we say, can, and, and more to the point, can we convince a jury that what the client did in relation to uh, an event like a snowstorm was reasonable under the circumstances? I still think that if someone is out there with the snowblower or the shovel and uh, doing their best um, to make the property safe, to remove as much accumulation as possible, I still think that that is a, a good case for reasonable care. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a there, there's no lo longer a bright line. There's no there's no magic formula. I think it all it all goes into the question of what did the property owner do, 
And I also believe that the the standard, as it were, is going to be a higher one when it comes to commercial properties. I think more is mm-hmm. going to be expected of them because it's going to be expected that commercial property owners are going to have uh, more resources and more abil- you know, a better ability to uh, monitor property, whereas a homeowner in a, in a residential setting, uh, it's, it's, it would be reasonable to expect that that person could come out and um, do a bang-up job at 5 a.m. and get the get the uh, the driveway and the walkways done, and then head off to work for the day. Um, and if uh, something happens during that time, the plow trucks come by, another storm blows in, um, we have rising and falling temperatures and such. Uh, I don't think the expectations on a residential property owner will be as high. All right, well, we're going to take a short break right now. Uh, don't uh, run out to shovel your driveway just yet because we'll be back in a few minutes with uh, more talk about uh, liability for snow. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, Visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE. 
Click on it and start listening. Or go to westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is in trial today, so he's not with us. Uh, I am joined by Jim Scamby, a partner in the Boston law firm of Tucker, Heifetz, and Saltzman, and by David White, a founding member of the law firm Breakstone, White, and Gluck, also in Boston. And we're talking about snow and ice litigation, uh, and uh, let's continue along that line. Hey, David, I, I want to ask you: Does this does this case have implications beyond uh, beyond the issue of shoveling the front steps? Uh, does this extend potentially into other areas uh, of liability uh, of any kind? Well, nothing comes to mind in terms of sort of the leftover exceptions. Uh, the SJC picked up a case a couple of years ago uh, when they were looking at a case against a supermarket, Roach Brothers. And uh, in that case, someone had fallen on some vegetable or fruit that had fallen on the floor, and they they jettisoned the old rule in that case, which was did the uh, did the store owner have reasonable notice of the fact that there was something on the ground that posed a risk to the shoppers, uh, and have sufficient time to clean it up? And they adopted a new standard, which is now called the mode of operation standard. Uh, which looks at the way things are displayed and the risk of things falling and the risk of people slipping on them and precautions taken to inspect or uh, to catch the debris such as mats. Uh, so you know, the, the court is really going around and cleaning up these little corners where there might have been some leftover exceptions. But I, I can't think of anything else that comes to mind. And, and also just to pick up on where, where what Jim was talking about a few minutes ago about sure. how the duty may vary from person to person, just to, looking at the court the court's language here, the duty of reasonable care does not make a property owner or an insurer of its property, nor does it impose unreasonable maintenance burdens. And the reasonable, what's reasonably expected of a property owner will depend on the amount of foot traffic anticipated, the magnitude of the risk reasonably feared, and the burden and expense of snow and ice removal. So I agree with Jim that a residential landowner who makes a good effort, uh, who's been a good neighbor uh, and anticipating people visiting, it's probably going to be excused in most cases by a jury. Uh, and the standard on a, on a commercial property owner or the operator of a, of a store is going to be much higher because they can reasonably anticipate a lot of foot traffic uh, on a daily basis. Uh, Jim, how about you? Do, do you see any application for this case uh, beyond the circumstances here? I mean, one thing that we've seen a lot of this winter are uh, are collapsing roofs. Uh, does this does this case have anything to do with with the potential liability in, in those kinds of circumstances? You know, I, that that's a great question, and I, I've had I've had neighbors come up to me during these blizzards and ask me questions. You know, do I have to do this and do I have to do that? Like, I try to tell them I really don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when you're talking about you, you can't pick up the paper uh, the last couple of weeks without reading about a roof collapse. And, you know, uh, it's one thing if the roof collapses and you have some property damage. But, you know, what if there were someone under, on the ground or someone inside, someone were injured? Is there now going to be an extension um, on the part of a property owner to remove snow and ice from a, from a roof? Um, these cases have never never delved into that murky water in terms of when you look at these cases, it's always, it's always a walkway, a path. Um, 
even the rationale that the that the court discusses in Papadopoulos and and in Soderberg too, which is an earlier case from 2010. Those cases focus on, you know, just the reasonable foreseeability uh, of someone becoming injured because, for example, this is a pedestrian walkway, this is a parking lot, um, this is uh, an access ramp. Those areas, I think, are fair game, and I think they're all contemplated by the court's decision that, look, when you have a property open for business, um, the means of ingress and egress need to be clear, the parking areas need to be clear. Could I see it extending to a, a roof? I think that's a work in progress. I think, I think everybody now is is on some form of notice that um, uh, roof collapses can happen. I mean, this this might be new territory for for some of us. It is for me. And the issue then becomes: okay, well, do you need to be concerned more about fixing your roof or facing a personal injury claim for someone who was injured by it? I don't know if the reasonable care standard will be extended so far as to require the clearing of, of rooftops, but I I can't rule that out right now based on the holding. I, I it doesn't say it. It doesn't not say it. And you know, if there were a case, I think it would be a very interesting um, it would be a very interesting uh, thing to see how a court would come down on that issue. When you turn on the issue of foreseeability, I think it's an easy one to to point to walkways and ramps and paths and and the typical ways people come and go from places. Roofs, not so sure about that. And further on that point, I I would just say this, uh, from personal experience, having a gentleman at my house today, um, I'm not going up on any roof. (laughs) (laughs) And... And you know when you when you look at the Papadopoulos decision, some of the factors that were mentioned are there was some reference to uh, you know economic constraints and things like that. I mean, if that's something that you know, look, an able-bodied person can man a shovel, uh, grab a bag of salt, uh, if if fortunate enough, you know, fire up a snowblower. I'm not so sure that it would be reasonable to expect any uh, ordinary person to grab an extension ladder and climb up onto a rooftop with a shovel. I think now you're putting yourself in a position of danger. Um, and I think that's a little tougher sell. I just, I can't say I can rule it out based on that decision. Right. David, you're going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I agree with Jim that the the number of collapses, about 150 or so, so far here this winter in Massachusetts, certainly suggests to anybody, if they have a flat roof, they better start thinking about the load up there. Uh, this is not a record breaker yet, but it's certainly approaching record-breaking for snow accumulation. And on top of that, in most places, we've had an inch or two of rain, and that just sort of soaks in and gets in the load. So if I was a commercial property owner, I would spend some time uh, assessing what the loads are and, and uh, maybe asking my engineers uh, whether, we're, whether we're comfortably within limits and certainly alert people, as most people have, that if you see uh, the sprinklers start to sag down below the, the roof line there, the ceiling line, that means we're probably going to lose uh, some uh, integrity here. But overall, I think one of the great things of this about this case, uh, and it's a pressure that's exerted by the tort system that you see across the board, is that it really uh, peaks awareness for the fact that we have to take reasonable care for our neighbors, our business guests, our business invitees, to use reasonable care. And at the end of the day, the court's decision is designed not to give work to people like Jim and, and me, but to prevent injuries to people who are traveling uh, in the wintertime. 
And as Jim mentioned earlier, the, the injuries you can get from going down are severe. Uh, hip fractures are a very common injury, and that's that can be a life changer or even a, a killer for an elderly person. And I think the court wants wants citizens in Massachusetts and businesses in Massachusetts to be careful and to prevent that kind of injury. Uh, and it, yes, it costs some money to get out there. And yes, it's a pain in the neck to get that shovel out again in a year like this, uh, morning, noon, and night, just to keep the front walk clear. Uh, but it's a duty we all have to our friends and neighbors and guests. And that, and that may you may have just answered my other my next question. Uh, we're unfortunately running out of out of time. But it, I, I know the SJC said that all of the other New England states had pretty much rejected the so-called Massachusetts rule. David, earlier you mentioned the the, New, the Rhode Island opinion that uh, basically said you don't get a seasonal exemption from liability if you're a property owner. Uh, you need to take reasonable precautions, no matter no matter the weather, essentially. Uh, so, you know, legally speaking, I, I, I would hazard a guess that, that the significance of this case is, is probably not great uh, outside of Massachusetts. But uh, perhaps the significance is, as you just suggested, David, that uh, it's a reminder to, to, to property owners everywhere uh, that they need to be responsible uh, for the, the safety of their property. Is that fair yep. to say? I, I agree 100 percent. And it just took snow and ice and put it on the same foot, footing as uh, crumbling masonry, rotten steps, uh, and anything else that could be a hazard on your property. Just take care of it and make it safe. Yeah, we are just about out of time. And I do want to give give each of you an opportunity to have your, uh, your closing thoughts on this before we wrap up the show. Uh, and uh, I also invite you, uh, if you'd like to uh, tell our listeners how they can follow up with you, uh, you may do that as well. Uh, David, let me start with you. Well, I think I already gave you my uh, closing thought there just on <laughs> I how I believe the tort system is, is working uh, and now has another tool uh, in the box that we can use to make sure that, that the world is a safer place. Uh, if anybody wants to discuss these things further with me, uh, the firm, as you mentioned, is Breakstone, White & Gluck, and our website is www.bwglaw.com. We're here in Boston. Bob, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot, David. Jim Scamby, your final thoughts. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, we have a law now, and it is what it is, to quote Bill Belichick. you know, <laughs> uh, We need to, uh, on the defense side of these cases, we need to get proactive. And I think I'm seeing a lot of that with the insurance clients uh, who are hosting some get-togethers and seminars for their policyholders, uh, telling them what it means and what they can do, how they can protect themselves. Um, uh, you can't eliminate the possibility of a claim, but you can certainly be better prepared to defend one uh, because the stuff's going to keep coming down, um, as we saw for over the past several weeks. Um, defense attorneys now can't rely as much on the law. We have to rely much more on facts. And so going into these cases now, uh, again, we can get proactive. We can try to get uh, some education out there for our, for our clients. Um, and hopefully that'll help us to to be equipped to defend these cases because at the end of the day they're still difficult cases. Um, I have it, it is a rare thing for me to get a snow and ice case in uh, to my office on the defense side and read the file and say, "Oh, I'm really concerned about this one." Um, generally speaking, I see good defenses, um, good factual defenses. Now that we don't have as many, or we don't we no longer have the primary legal defense of natural accumulation. But if anyone would like to get in touch with me to talk about uh, this perspective, the firm is Tucker, Heifetz, and Saltzman, and our website is 
T-H-S, that's Tango Hotel Sierra, dash law.com. My office phone number is area code 617-557-9696. Well, David White, James Scamby, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, appreciated it very much. Very interesting discussion. Uh, like to remind our listeners uh, that this program and archive of all of our past programs uh, is available at the LegalTalkNetwork.com and also uh, on the uh, podcast library in iTunes and also that you can now get CLE credit for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer by going to the LegalTalkNetwork.com and clicking on the uh, West Legal Ed Center icon there. A uh, special thanks to our uh, superior uh, crew at the Legal Talk Network, Kate Kenny, our producer, Mike Hockman, our recording uh, engineer, and uh, everybody else at the Legal Talk Network for the great work they do in producing this program. We will be back next week with another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Talk to you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.